we pick up in our series on the life of Abraham in chapter 19 to refresh your memory just briefly. At the end of chapter 18, God had been visiting with Abraham, reminding him of all these good things about his covenant, but then told him of the impending judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities in the valley uh, around them. And that is where we're picking up. So this is a bit of a sober and uh, kind of shocking passage, but as we're here for our instruction, I hope you'll see in the long run. So we pick up at the beginning of chapter 19. We will skip a section. I'll explain a little bit about what's going on as we go. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. And they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place? For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. I'm going to skip a long section. Lot takes some pushing out the door. Uh, he drags his feet. He argues about where to go. And finally, while, they, while he and his family are escaping, the Lord rains down sulfur and fire on the cities And we're told Lot's wife still looks back longingly and has turned into a pillar of salt. And we'll pick up in verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is obviously, you know, while the scriptures are not graphic, 
This is obviously a pretty heavy story, and it touches on a lot of issues that perhaps we have questions or struggles with. So let's pray for wisdom. Father, we ask that you would teach us by your word, that we would see in it and be warned where we need to be warned, but that even in the midst of the warning, you would show us all that you have done to provide for us, to give us a way out through your son. We ask all this in his name. Amen. A few weeks ago, the New Yorker ran a long-form piece. Uh, The online version is titled, The Ship That Became a Bomb. The opening line of the story, of, of the report is, soon a vast, decrepit oil tanker in the Red Sea will likely sink, catch fire, or explode. It's the story of the FSO Saffir, uh, which was an enormous tanker ship, the, the type we don't even use anymore, uh, that from the mid-20th century. In the late 80s, the government in Yemen decided to permanently moor it off the coast to use it as a floating storage and loading facility. Uh, so, you know, a, a way offshore to kind of manage all this oil. Well, That was all good and fine, but of course, you may know that Yemen has been torn apart for quite a while now by civil wars. And back in 2014, the Houthi tribe took control of that region. And since then, uh, the ship has really not been maintained. It's a 45-year-old ship. Uh, It lost its boilers a few years ago. So there's no power on the ship. There's no AC on the ship. The only power they have is from some diesel generators on the deck to just run some basic things. But it has been years since they've been able to run the system to inert the flammable hydrocarbons they're building up in the tanks. In other words, the combustible gas is building up in the tanks. Um, There's no AC underneath. So below deck, it's over 120 pretty frequently. And of course, it's rusting out. So it is this problem. The UN is trying to get involved, but that is really not what they do. And uh, the the Houthi leadership has not been particularly cooperative. Everybody is making all of these choices for various reasons, but the consequences are starting to add up. So what, what will happen to this ship eventually is, you know, probably worst case scenario, it explodes and will kill people that live near the coast. Uh, Not to mention, you know, what burning oil will do uh, to the environment. Of course, uh, there, you know, there's all kinds of problems. If it catches fire, you'll have a lot of the similar problems. In any of these scenarios, and even if none of those happen, it will probably eventually start leaking. And the problem is that will essentially choke off the Red Sea as a shipping lane not to mention the ecological effects. It's a, basically, it's a disaster waiting to happen. It's a story about consequences. The consequences that, you know, nobody in the story intended, and yet all of their choices are leading to. And that really is what judgment is. It's an impending catastrophe. Consequences. You know, no one, no one plans to be judged and found wanting. But yet it is the consequences 
of what we do. So this is important because the issue of judgment is really central to the Bible. It's, it's important to understand if you are a Christian, to understand what we do believe and don't believe, and to have some really specific clarity on what it means for you. But also, of course, it's probably of interest if you're not a Christian, or if you're somewhere on the fence and not quite sure where you belong, right? I mean, this is a really important question. So, this passage, I think, leads us to ask some very straightforward questions, right? Why does judgment matter? Who gets to judge? And do we have any hope in the face of judgment? Right? So, why judgment matters, who gets to judge, and what hope we have in the face of it? Well, the story as we, as we find it here is filled with, I mean, just horrific things going on. Again, you know, the Scripture isn't necessarily graphic about it, but it doesn't take a lot to fill it in, to fill in your imagination. There is, of course, violence, which is probably the most dominant theme throughout the whole story, right? From the very beginning, when these two angels show up, Lot is insistent that they come and stay at his house, probably because he understands exactly what would happen if they if they slept out in the square, that they would be subject to violence. This is, uh, and it's kind of strange, a number of commentators note this, that hospitality was a really big deal in the ancient world. Uh, one, you know, it was really thought of as one of the worst things you could do not to protect those who you were showing hospitality to. Uh, and so there's a contrast between the beginning of chapter 18 when Abraham had welcomed the Lord and these two angels and the hospitality he had shown to them and what's going on in Sodom as uh, this story unfolds. But needless to say, what, what happens as the mob shows up is a clear display of the assumption that other people can simply be used and discarded. Uh, then, of course, uh, on to that, it's not just violence merely, it is sexual violence as well. The terms for knowing and being acquainted are in the Old Testament euphemisms uh, for it. But here, it's used almost as a joke, right? I mean, you can almost hear the kind of callous laughter of the mob about what they intend. It, of course, is not, is not overlooked often that... This is also a homosexual act, right? And this is a difficult thing. You see, on the one hand, that sometimes gets so emphasized when the primary note of violence, right, is, is so clear that, you know, this isn't, this isn't about what, it is true, this is not about what consenting people do together, right? This is, this is about violence. And we'll get to lots horrific idea as well in a minute, but, you know, that's, that would be heterosexual, but that's not the point, right? That would miss the point. On the other hand, it is not accidental. And this is a, this particularly is a difficult topic, which is hard to kind of ignore here, that the Bible does tell us that God created us male and female and created sex for that kind of marital relationship, and the more we deviate from that, the more problematic it is. That is a whole huge can of worms. 
I hope all of us recognize that that's a much larger conversation uh, to think about what that means for, say, our society at large, where questions around sexuality are very much uh, debated, uh, where, and not, not as if they're abstract ideas, but they're hotly contested. In fact, many of us uh, you know, we're not just talking about some other people out there. We're talking about friends. We're talking about family. We may even be talking about something we're struggling with as well, trying to figure out about ourselves. In my point, and I simply am trying to point out this passage is not telling us that's the end of the world. The question always with sexuality is really not the question of orientation or identity. The Bible's largely unconcerned with that kind of categorization. In fact, the Bible assumes that our hearts have many, many, many desires that go in different and sometimes even conflicting directions. The question isn't really what it is that we desire. The question is whether we, those things are reined in. And this doesn't simply apply to sexuality. It applies to plenty of other areas in your life too. But, the, but that's the central question. So needless to say, and I know that I'm kind of going down a rabbit trail here, uh, my door's always open to talk through these things. I know that many of you, and I've talked with some of you about some of your questions and some of the things you're trying to figure out. And that's okay, I'll listen. And we'll think through uh, what it looks like. But all that is to say is that the issue of sexuality is just another layer, right, to what is happening here, right? Sex that is weaponized. Which gets, again, to Lot's unbelievable idea here that he would simply hand over his daughters instead. And don't miss that, right? Lot is not a good dude. Lot's not a righteous man. He tells them not to do their, the wicked thing they want and instead proposes a different wicked thing for them to do. And for him to be complicit in. Don't miss that. Right? Lot is not a good dude. Lot's not a righteous man. Remember, last week we talked about Abraham pleading for, for you know, the righteous in Sodom, if there are any. And he gets to a number that is probably includes all of Lot's household. It doesn't work. Lot is not a righteous man. In all of this, and this is the thing, they're not judged for this incident or only this incident. God has said he was, he was sending his messengers down there to see if the outcry that has gone up to him is true. In other words, this is one incident in a long, long line of horrific things. This is not a good place. This is a terrible place to be. It's wealthy. We know that from the surrounding context. But in its wealth, Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the valley have become morally horrific places to be. The outcry of those who are victims has gone up to God. And that language of outcry... The Hebrew noun and the associated verb are the regular routine vocabulary of God judging. 
he has heard the outcry of those who are being ground down. All of this is to say that it is a, the Bible has a very realistic picture of evil. Maybe more real than we're really comfortable with. Because the idea of judgment is often a stumbling block. In, through the 20th century, there were many people who just thought, well, look, if there is a God, judgment's not really something he should be, be getting his hands dirty with. Right? This was a God who was an abstraction. I think, most of, I think that intuition died in America on September 11th. 21st century, that is not what we hear, right? Not very often, anyway. It would, only, it, would take, it would take the delusion that people are basically good and that you live a life that is far out of reach of the bad apples to think that God shouldn't really deal with evil. Instead, we take issue with what the things are that God chooses to judge. We think there are evil people and they should be judged for what they do but what I do, or what my friends do, I don't know about that. I mean, we've obviously already touched on the issue of sexuality, and that is a, such a charged issue in our own time, but there's plenty of other issues, right? I mean, there's money. Most of us are, to be honest, are pretty uncomfortable with, the, with what the Bible teaches about money. Maybe even especially what Jesus teaches about money. <laughs> Not that we think we're greedy. No one has ever in the history of the world confessed to being greedy. But we don't want to listen. We certainly don't think God would judge over that. There's what we say. The Bible has a lot to say about how we use our tongue, how we talk about other people when we talk about them. Should I go on? There's a lot of things, right? And we think to ourselves, well, what I'm doing, or those who are close to me are doing, well, no one's really getting harmed, right? Which betrays a number of bizarre assumptions. When we think that we're okay because no one's getting harmed, it proves, first of all, that we think the primary thing is just the effect it has on others. As if what's going on in me is not really an issue. as if God's not interested in what's actually happening inside of me. It also, it also tends to assume that, the, that what matters are effects that can be quantified. Well, how on earth do you, do you quantify the effect of Lot's boneheaded idea, and that's putting it lightly, on his daughters? How on earth would you quantify that? But of course, it's a real wound. There are so many things in life, it is hard to quantify the effects, and yet the effects are real. And more to the point is that it betrays the idea that we think we have a right to do what we want with ourselves. And God, the Creator, thinks otherwise. 
Not that other people have the right to tell you to do with yourself with what they think you ought to do, but that God has a claim on us. That he knows what is good, what is right, what we ought to pursue. And so it's very complicated, right? (laughs) Really quickly. If we try to make ourselves arbiters, it's pretty difficult to, to get through that. Somebody needs to sort this mess out. And we're woefully underqualified. Right? Judgment needs to come because the world is really filled with evil. And if we're being honest, it's in us as well. So who will judge? Right? That's the second question. Who's going to judge? There's something fascinating about the interaction between Lot and the people of Sodom. I don't know if you picked this up. So Lot, if you don't know, uh, if it's not clear to you yet, is Abraham's nephew. And he had come down into the promised land with Abraham, and he had decided to settle in this region and to make his home there in Sodom. But he's sitting in the gate at the beginning of the story, which was a place of prominence. It's where the wealthy men of the city would sit. It's also where the leaders of the city would sit. So often a lot of important business was conducted in the gates of the city. Also, a lot of the, the sort of hearing of various issues uh, within the city, you know, basic functions of justice took place in, you know, in the gate, really at the front when you come in and go out from the city. And uh, so he's given a place of prominence because he's, uh, he's very wealthy. But the minute he speaks up in verse 9, they're like, well, who are you to pass judgment on us? Notice that? I mean, they're happy for him to make a lot of money and make them wealthier in the process. But they think, well, who are you to judge us? And that's That's a good question, actually, especially in the situation where Lot's proposal to them was so wicked itself. Get the picture here? Who's going to pass judgment? Is it going to be Lot? It'd be a pretty bad situation. No, the angels are there as God's messengers, right? That's why they've come is to bear witness to the evil happening in the city. The people, don't even, the people of the city don't even know who they are. And they're just some anonymous people passing through, but that anonymity, of course, speaks to their objectivity in the situation, right? They see, as God does, things as they really are. They're not blinded by being party to all of this evil. See, it has to be God who judges. Because you and I are just simply not qualified. The, and if God is going to claim to be good, then he must judge. What use is it, right? I mean, we say, that, like, we say this about bystanders, right? In a situation in the news, right? That if somebody is just watching what's happening... 
You know, the, the intuition seems to be to pull out your phone and film it now without actually intervening. We don't call that person good. That, that isn't... You, if, you, if you're just going to sit back and not do anything about it, how is that good? And of course, the more powerful you are in a situation, the, the more... The onus is on you, right, to step in. And that's the whole point, right? If God is going to claim to be good, then he has to judge. If there's actually that much evil in the world, the most empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian, you know, of Christian theology, if there's that much evil in the world, then God has to judge. The problem is that God doesn't agree with what we think we ought to be judged for, as we've already touched on, right? but I'm a pretty bad judge of myself. That's the issue, right? There's an old Bob Dylan lyric, right? Uh, I was so much older, thinking about his past, right? I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. Well, I thought I had it all figured out when I was like two. There's not a two-year-old that doesn't think they've got the world figured out, right? Then there's a long period where you're not so sure, and then you get to about 15, and then you, I had the world figured out when I was 15. And then again, when I was about 20, right? you know, like it's amazing how much we think we have the world figured out and then we change our minds. I'm a pretty bad judge actually of myself. I mean, in surprise, I tend to go a little easy on my own issues, even the ones I want to admit to. I tend to go light on myself. That's not really the issue. And you see, this is important to understand too because what this story is meant to do is not to tell us how to judge others. This is such an important point, such an important point. The way that stories of judgment in the Bible, this one in particular as we've already talked about how it touches on some issues of sexuality, becomes a, a, an occasion so often for the church to say, look at the evil that those people are doing over there. And that is not what God intends, right? Remember, in the previous passage in chapter 18, he, God tells Abraham about it so that he and his descendants would walk in his ways. Not so that they could think of themselves as superior to those who are doing those things, so that they will repent. So they will look at their own hearts and see what's going on. And look, of course God wants us to see with clarity, you know, what we're tempted with. What others are telling us is good that's actually evil. Of course God wants us to see that with clarity. And Sodom is used over and over and over again in the Bible as an illustration. I mean, Moses uses it twice in Deuteronomy in his farewell speech as a warning. The Isaiah, Isaiah uses it a bunch of times. Jeremiah uses it a bunch of times. Ezekiel uses it. Amos uses it. Zephaniah uses it. Jesus uses it twice as an illustration. Of the apostles... Paul, Peter, Jude, 
and John in Revelation use it as examples. It is brought up over and over and over again as an example, but here's the thing. Not so that we can think of ourselves as separate, but so that we can be reminded that God brings everything into judgment so that we reflect on who we are. I used to have, I went to a Christian high school and I had a Bible teacher and one of his lines that he would say all the time was that we ought to look at what's going on in the world and be shocked. He said that, he would say that all the time. And then one day I thought, should we? I don't think we should. The point isn't, the thing that we should be, I mean, we should be realistic. We should be clear in our moral judgments. However, the point of all these things is not so that we think of others as being worse than us, so that we become the arbiters of judgment, but rather so that we look at these stories and we think, what's going on in my own life? Because too often the church sounds exactly like the Pharisee in Luke 18, who looked around in the temple and said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like others. And if that's your takeaway from this story, you're wrong. This story is calling us to repentance. This story is calling us to take stock of what is going on in our own lives. So why does God delay then if he's a judge? That's actually, that's maybe one of the hardest questions I know. Because it's one thing to say, well, look, I don't want God to judge me for this. But it's another thing to say, well, I have been sinned against in this way or that. And why hasn't God done anything about it? It's interesting that the Bible tells us that God is doing all these things in his own time. Right? And that there are moments like this in Sodom and Gomorrah when he gives a preview of the coming judgment. Of course, this isn't the ultimate judgment, right? The ultimate in judgment is to be, very, to be cut off from the very love of God completely. I mean, that's finally what hell is. And yet there are these moments and why God chooses to intervene in certain times like this and not others is a great mystery. I can tell you there's a lot of Psalms that struggle with this. You haven't read through the Psalms in a while. You might be surprised at how many of them are about struggling with being sinned against, with the evil that is out there in the world. But it is not that God has not given an answer. And that has everything to do with the hope that we have in the face of judgment. The third question. 
As, you know, Lot is delivered out of this, but as we've already noted, it is not because he's a righteous man. Not in the least. You know, he, in, in, in the stuff that we skipped in the passage, I mean, he's lingering, really dragging his feet about getting out. And the angels are practically having to push him out of the city. His wife is looking back longingly. I, we, we aren't even going to read the, the, the very end of this chapter in which we hear about the strange incestuous choices his daughters make. I wonder how they got so messed up, huh? Lot's not a good dude. And yet the Lord delivers him. And we're told why in verse 29. Because God remembered Abraham. That even this guy, Lot, is delivered because of God's covenant love for Abraham. He's delivered for Abraham's sake. Not because, he's, not because Lot is righteous, but because the Lord is gracious. Lot is delivered as a side effect of God's grace on Abraham. And verses 27 and 28 do something strange. I don't know if you noticed this, and maybe you didn't feel it because of what we cut out from the reading, but all of the action is really focused on what's going on in Sodom and pushing them out and and, uh, Lot and his family running away, trying to get out of the valley. And then it's as if the camera sort of pans way, 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 way back and up on the mountain. (laughs) We get a glimpse of Abraham watching what has happened. The lesson being impressed on him that God wanted to teach him. The lesson of God's judgment. And this is the thing that's so important that we understand in the face of judgments. It's not even that Abraham is righteous. We're going to see Abraham screw up again next week. Yet again but that Abraham trusted in the Lord and was counted righteous. That's what we're told back in chapter 15. He trusted in the Lord. And because he trusted in the Lord, the Lord counted it as righteous. This is the good news. In the context of those who deserve judgment, you know, Paul reminds us of this in Romans 3. This is the good news that now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, not by being a good person. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our hope is, in the midst of judgment, is not in what we've done. I mean, there's just, you know, we got to say that in an unqualified way, unequivocally, right, that we are not saved because of what we've done. End of story, period, no more discussion. We are not saved because we're good people. And if we're telling ourselves that story as a church, then we are under judgment, not delivered from it. 
We are not saved because we are good people. We are saved because Jesus is good and gave his life for us. The one who was righteous, the only one who's ever been righteous, gave his life in our place. It is because Jesus loved us that he gave his life in our place. So we need not fear judgment if we trust in him. And that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? We need not fear. Because if we trust in Jesus, judgment's already happened. This is something important to understand, right? Judgment day actually began on the cross. That is why Paul and the rest of the New Testament will talk about living in the end of time, because the end of time started. Judgment day began on the cross. Everyone who is in Jesus was judged on that day. Everybody who has or will have faith in Jesus Christ was judged in the horrific death and more significantly in the cutting off of the Son from the love of the Father as He hung on the cross. We were judged. And many people think that that means, okay, well then we don't, what's the point? And it's so, it's not surprising, but it's so curious how often Christians come back to that thought, right? Well, but yeah, I mean, but there's still got to be some judgment, right? Because why would people obey? Why would they do anything good if they weren't going to have to be judged for it? And that is usually a betrayal of this very basic idea that we've missed that God's justification, his making us righteous, is because of an act by Jesus. And the more we treat it as some sort of abstract doctrinal truth and not the thing accomplished by the body and blood of Jesus, the more it just seems like, well, God's just sort of justified us, right? So we can kind of get away with whatever. But if you are looking the one who's loved you in the face and gave his life for you, then why we would want to be righteous is pretty obvious. Because he loved us. So we love him. It's really that simple, isn't it? He loved us, gave his life in our place so we would not be judged. And the only question left is how do we love him back? He loved us and he gave his life for us. Some ways there's no much there's really not much else to say, right? I mean, for all the talking well that I end up doing about theology that we all end up doing and thinking about and the problems we have, it really comes down to this, right? Do you believe that God has loved you and given his life for you? Are you looking for motivation? that's not based in fear or shame, then it's really this simple. Do you know that you are loved 
by God and that he gave his life for you. He loves you. He gave his life for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us and you gave your son for us. We thank you that it is out of his love for us, your love for us, that he laid down his life so that we might pass through judgment and find a life that is not motivated by fear but love. Lord, teach us to be repentant, to turn away from what is evil because we are confident that we are not being judged and instead want to live into the love that you've given us. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.